For Jerry Tarkanian, today is Christmas. A couple of presents under his tree, the first of which Chris Heron, a great shooting guard, back from substance abuse. Everybody, not my house is in the house. Uh, this is Eric, your host today, and as always, right next to me, my co-host Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning, my friend? Really excited today because this is somebody who has touched a lot of people across the world, including myself. And I know that this is going to be maybe the most important conversation that we've had on this show. So I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely, he's a former NBA player, and he played for the Denver Nuggets and the Boston Celtics. You might recognize him from. His 30 for 30 unguarded and also the first day. We are beyond honored to have him on the show today. Mr. Chris Heron, how are you doing today this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on our show. You grew up in Falls River, Massachusetts. In the documentary, um, they bring up some tough times for you in Fall River. What could you tell us about the positives about growing up there? How it shaped you overall? What was your childhood like? What was your family life like? Yeah, so I mean, I think Fall River, you know... Um, for the benefit of the drama, uh, you know, got a bad rap in, in many ways. And, and oftentimes, you know, my uh, immaturity when I was younger um, kind of lent to me, you know, blaming Fall River at times. Um, you know, Fall River is a great city. It's a tough city. It's a blue collar city. It's, it's, it's a mill city. It's, it's textiles. Um, it's very diverse in culture um you know i I grew up you know my parents were young um you know my dad was 18 uh and my and and so was my mom when my brother was born you know we grew up in a housing project um my parents worked really hard to get us out of that and, and they did um you know my mom kept you know, going to school and getting her degrees and trying to move up in the world. And she was able to accomplish that. My father became a politician, Um, you know, but behind that was, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, Um, you know, and and alcoholism does not allow for a very stable household. Um, 
So behind the, 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 the fairy tale story of, you know, starting in a housing project um, and moving on, it's, it's, you know, there was alcoholism. So childhood could be tough at times. Um, you know, I recall as a kid, you know, hating uh, Miller Lite. Um, I hated, you know, seeing my mom all by herself in her bedroom at night. I, I hated what a, a, a divide that that beer can put into our family. And I knew it at a young age. Um, so, you know, that, that was kind of my childhood in a nutshell. And then, you know, I got a little older and I started playing basketball and I was pretty good at it. You know, what's interesting uh, to tell the listeners, I, I come from a, a family where my father was an alcoholic also, and he, he just got sober actually like a year or two ago, which is amazing. But um, I didn't notice it when I was a kid as much as you did. Um, I noticed, you know, he drank, but I didn't realize there was much of a problem until later. So I, you know, processing that later on was a trip for me. Um, and I think I use sports as kind of like a an escape in a way and it was a way that I connected with my dad too um you have a rich family history in sports and uh was your introduction to sports basketball or were you like a little league baseball kid first what was your introduction to sports so I had two cousins who went on to play you know triple a baseball um my grandfather played minor league baseball so baseball was definitely part of the family um it just didn't fit well with my attention um, for, you know, the, the, the pace of baseball, I was very good at, good at it as a child. I played baseball, I played soccer, I played basketball. Um, you know, but just the tempo of baseball was very tough for me, uh, to wrap my head around. So, you know, sports has always been part of my life. Um, you know, I believe, you know, that sports has now, um, kind of spilled over into my recovery. You know, a lot of that, what I've learned in sports is, is something that I, I took with me into the recovery world. Um, you know, I believe to go back a little bit, I believe, you know, the grittiness of Fall River, um, you know, that blue collar mindset um, is, is a mindset that I've always had and is a mindset that, you know, was very applicable to, to me in my recovery. Real quick question, kind of going back to your uh, basketball playing days when you're younger, who were some of your role models and heroes, maybe both on and off the court, or maybe somebody that you tried to emulate your game after when you're growing up? You know, I think my brother, um, you know, this was before, you know, YouTube and cell phones and, you know, my Durfee basketball in Florida, Massachusetts was the biggest show in town. It was bigger than the Boston Celtics, you know, like three, 4,000 people went to high school games. Um, you know, my high school had season ticket holders and people traveled all over the state to be fans in the stands at away games. Um, so it's kind of what I grew up with and what I knew when I watched my brother be very, very successful at it. Um, you know, he won back-to-back -back state championships and he played in the Boston Garden in front of a sold-out crowd when he was 16 years old. Um, so it was something that I had a lot of respect for and admiration. Um, and it's somebody who I wanted to, to be like, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, some of the decisions I was making at a young age, uh, you know, and, and my friend group, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't the health, healthiest high school athletes for sure.
Right. That's wild that you guys had season tickets in high school. I did not know that. That's like some Friday Night Lights stuff right there. But um, in the first day, you talk about how you stayed up at night promising you wouldn't be that kid. And you just reference how you hated the Miller Light cans. I feel like this is an important question for the younger listeners, but yeah. was there maybe a significant moment that you can remember that not necessarily started your addiction, but maybe opened that door to lead you down, you know, the road that was ahead? Or, I mean, what really made you break that promise? Like, what was what was it that made you maybe open that beer can? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it was a culmination of a lot of things. I think it's so multi-layered, right? I could look at the pressure in my life, in my adolescent and early teen years around basketball, I can look at my family dynamics, which was falling apart because of alcohol. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, right down to, you know, what most kids struggle with, you know, the curiosity and the peer pressure. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I was kind of attacked on all fronts, in a sense. Um, you know, I, I just, I just kind of had the makeup for the perfect, you know, the perfect storm. And, uh, you know, I consider myself to have a pretty addictive personality, which is something that I think is actually really helped me in basketball because I'd be addicted to maybe getting my, my shots in or, you know, more reps, whatever it was. And I think really only basketball players can relate to that feeling of a basketball high. So this might be a strange question, but when you were younger, did basketball maybe contribute to your alcohol or drug uh, issues? Or do you think it was more of your escape and maybe replacing that feeling of an alcohol high with the basketball high? You know, I, I, think, I, I think basketball was my escape. It was kind of my safety space um, up until probably eighth grade. Um, you know, eighth grade, I, that's when college coaches started recruiting me, um, you know, walking into high school and then, and you know, at 14, 15 years old, having, you know, big time college coaches in the bleachers watching you with a notepad, taking notes. You know, I was always being assessed. I was always being critiqued. So that safe place, that escape was no longer that peaceful you know, few hours that I participated because now, you know, I'm not, I'm not participating alone anymore. You know, there's other people involved and, and, you know, my performance, um, it matters. And, you know, so that went to, you know, more stress in my life, um, more pressure in my life from the game that used to be my refuge is now, you know, contributing to a lot of stress in my life yeah it makes sense too because it's like i think a lot of people i'm a musician myself and i think you know i i, I teach also and i tell a lot of my students you know don't forget what it was like when you first started playing you know which mm. i think a lot of people do when they get to that level where they start you know in my in my case where they start you know gigging and then they start touring and then you know then the business side of it comes in like you said the pressure side comes of it and then you start forgetting why you did it in the first place and you start losing that love other people start taking that love away from you if that makes sense um and yeah that's that's a great point you make because there it, it is pressure and especially for you know being a kid you know being 14 right. years old because you really are a kid of 14 or 13 you don't have that 
your brain's not fully developed in terms of making, you know, correct decisions when there is things like peer pressure and stuff like that. I, I, I guess an interesting question I have for you is, um, you know, you're starting to get offers from schools, you know, you got scouts and coaches in the stands. Um, was there any conversations about your lifestyle um, or did you have it pretty well hidden at the time where they had no idea that you were doing what you were doing? No, I mean, I, you know, I think it was different times, right? So, you know, in early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, um, that was just kind of part of the culture, like going out and drinking on weekends, you know, and, you know, occasionally coming across some marijuana, some bud to smoke. Um, you know, like, I, yeah, I just remember showing up to practice and, and being hungover and the coaches being like, somewhat disgusted but like they knew you know they had the attitude and i think a lot of people still have the attitude is you know kids will be kids um you know it really my lifestyle was not looked upon like hey you know what are you thinking here you have an opportunity to be really good at something you might want to reevaluate you know some of the decisions you're making and you know, some of the places you're hanging out, you know, no, that never, ever came up when I was younger. Yeah. And you mentioned how there were days where maybe a coach, maybe recognizing you were hungover. Um, did you think that you're any different from maybe your college teammates at that point or, you know, high school teammates, like was, where was that pretty normal for you? Or did you know that, you know, I'm kind of going down a road a little bit further than some of these guys. Oh, see, I knew I knew my road was different. Right. When especially when cocaine entered it, you know, um, you can't deny that. Right. You can't deny at 18, 19 years old when you're jamming a ton of cocaine up, you know, that, you know, life is normal. Um, you know, I also recognized very early on in college, um, you know, when I went to B.C., and they told me as a division one athlete, I was going to be subjected to random drug testing. Um, and I couldn't pass a drug test. Um, and I couldn't pass a drug test that, that really, you know, that put me in a spot where I knew right away, like I was different, you know, that I was, I was different. I couldn't, you know, put it down like the rest of my teammates. Now, did you think that this, I know it's probably an interesting question to you. Do you think staying in that same area hurt you in terms of your addiction? Do you think if you would have maybe gone to Fresno state first or somewhere across the country, that would have changed for you or no? No, in, in hindsight, you know, looking back, I wish, you know, I probably would have, you know, if, if I was, if, if I were my son today, um, you know, and, and where I was at emotionally, mentally, I probably would have been better served going to like a prep school for a year, you know, doing a fifth year where you're still a kid, but you, you have to manage your time and, and you, there's still oversight. Um, you know, that probably would have been my best option. Um, you know, getting away, right? Like I did drugs in every country, you know, like no matter where I went, I found drugs. Um, 
you know, it's just, you know, my in within my region where I grew up, I just had better access. Um, you know, I think I would have found it and I did find it. I mean, there was, you know, it just took me a little more time in Fresno to get get to where I wanted to get um, and what I wanted to get. So, um, you know, the move, I don't know. I think, I think the prep school would have been the best option. Yeah. And it's a really good point that you make about the prep schools, because I feel like we have a lot more access and information now to those types of prep schools these days, rather than, uh, you know, back when you played. And it's people like you who are bringing that awareness that make people realize that we have those options. But when you transfer to Fresno, I'm a huge Jerry uh, Tarkinian fan. Mm-hmm. You both clearly had a mutual love for each other. And I just want to know what he meant to you as a coach and why he was so special to you and why you think that you're so special to him. You know, I mean, after what I had gone through at BC, I was kind of, I was kind of hands off for a while. Like nobody wanted to, nobody wanted to deal with me. Um, you know, a lot of the coaches that recruited me heavily, um, you know, they disappeared. Uh, and cocaine wasn't, you know, it was a very kind of taboo topic, you know, especially, you know, in 1994, like around basketball with the Len Bias and the Reggie Lewis and all those stuff that was happening. Um, you know, nobody really wanted to touch me. Nobody wanted to, 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 to allow me to kind of get a second chance. So, you know, the fact that Coach Tarkanian did, um, you know, and, and, you know, looking back, I think what, you know, what made me as an athlete was that year that I got to sit out when I transferred, um, you know, that, that allowed me to kind of slow down and, and, and reconnect with basketball and, and work really hard. Um, I think that year I, I sat out is what gave me the, you know, the ability to have a great career in college. Yeah. And you bring up an excellent point about the Len Bias and Reggie Lewis thing, because those conversations about cocaine were very taboo. But if there is any coach that could relate to it, I feel like it would be Tarkanian since he was kind of known for giving players second chances. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious, was there any advice from him that really helped you down the road through of your, maybe your recovery or something that really sticks out to you to this day that really helped you? Or what did you learn from him? Well, I mean, Coach Tarkanian, to be honest, right? Like he's, he was, you know, a remarkable man for me. And, but he was older, right? Like he didn't really understand the world of cocaine. You know, he had players that, had had you know engaged and done cocaine at UNLV and you know he had dealt with Lloyd Daniels at UNLV but coach Tarkanian is from a different era like he just couldn't really wrap his head around drug addiction and the struggle you know what he could wrap around was his arms and give you a hug and be like I really want you to be better can you just put that shit down basically um you know, he was an emotional man with me. He was, he was very, we had a very unique relationship. Like it was very, you know, father, son ish, you know, um, you know, we were closer than most player coach relationships. Um, you know, I, and, and I worked really hard for him. You know, I, I, I worked really hard. I put my heart and soul every time I got on that floor 
um, for myself and for Fresno State and for Coach Tarkanian. So, um, you know, I, I look back and Fresno State was very therapeutic, right? They were very like, we're going to send you initially, we're going to get you a therapist and then we're going to put you in an in, intense outpatient program. And then we're going to connect you with, you know, sober members of the community. And they worked really hard to help me. Um, whereas BC was just like three strikes, you're out. Um, the, it, there wasn't much help on that end. Um, so it's that stuff that I remember most. Um, you know, is Coach Tarkanian working really hard for me and advocating for me to, to stay engaged in the program, to not be thrown out of the program and connecting me with people who are going to try to help me. Now, do you think, and I know this is probably a weird question to ask, but you brought up something that I thought was really interesting and something I was going to ask you. So I'm going to pivot on it real quick. Do you think that Fresno was ahead of the game and ahead of the curve in terms of that? Or did you hear from maybe other players around the country that other schools were being proactive like Fresno was? Because I know, I mean, I'm, I'm probably around the same age you are. You know, drugs were a big no-no. And, and the attitude that people had was, oh, if you're a drug addict, you're a drug addict. You don't mean anything. You know, and it's, it's it, I think we're coming around more as a society to, to treat mm -hmm people was fresno kind of like cutting edge for that or, or were there other schools doing that i mean i'm sure other schools were too um i wasn't aware of other schools that were doing it at the time you know i'm aware of the schools now that do it um you know and and but the reality and the sad thing is that there's there's schools that still look at it as punitive and you know if you're gonna engage in any of that you're gonna be punished um, suspended and eventually terminated. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of colleges in this country that, that still have that same mindset around substance use. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, to, to many, many universities credit, you know, they're taking a more therapeutic, proactive approach on treating the illness rather than punishing it. Yeah, and I think that makes an enormous difference. I mean, we're just we're seeing that just even over the last decade, how much things are changing, which I think is super important. Um, I want to talk a little bit NBA, if it's possible. I'm curious about the draft process for you because a lot of former players that we get to talk to have mentioned in some of these interviews, it's almost like a background check, and it's amazing some of the questions they ask. And we know it's kind of like a business, and we've learned a lot about that from players. Did you go through the interview process yourself? And did some of these interviews maybe make you feel like, wow, I didn't think it was this bad? Yeah, I mean, I, I did go through it. I did go through the whole draft process. Um, you know, some teams, would, you know, it, it, they, they vary, right? I mean, some teams were, were really basketball-centric, focused. Um, others were, you know, personality and, and, and behavior. Um, whether it was, you know, testing or, or being interviewed and asked questions, you know, each team was kind of different, you know, like I remember going to the Miami heat and it was a very intense basketball workout. Um, you know, they wanted to have you in the gym for two and a half hours and have eyes on you, um, and really assess you as a basketball player, um, and then I remember going to the Atlanta Hawks and sitting in an office and, and, you know, 
filling in circles with a pencil doing a personality test, you know, for an hour and a half. So, you know, all teams were kind of different. Um, but the draft process, you know, that I went through, um, you know, you kind of never knew what to expect when you showed up. Yeah. And you ended up getting drafted by the Denver Nuggets. And I mean, you mentioned how Nick Van Exel and Antonio McDice were guys that uh, really took you under their wing. And I know that you mentioned some of the rules they had for you and time to sacrifice their nights. But in that situation, do you feel that was a situation that could have maybe put you down the right path? Or, I mean, do you feel like the NBA as an organization needs to offer more to players that have these kind of issues? Like, I mean, because I, I feel like they didn't really have any organizations or anything to help mm. players like you and your situation at the time. No, they did. So I was immediately put into the player assistance program, um, you know, because of, you know, my history and my background. I mean, that I was immediately introduced to that. Um, you know, I remember being in Denver, having to go see, you know, a, a therapist um, routinely. Um, and it was all done through the, you know, players assistant program through the, through the union. Um, I don't know, um, you know, exactly what they have in place today. They did have it in place when I was there. I was, you know, I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, I was, it was a blink. I was there and then I wasn't. Um, so I didn't really have a lot of runway to kind of assess what they were offering for support and their services. Um, you know, I know the NBA, you know, if you can pass one drug test early on, you're very unlikely to be tested again throughout the season. Um, you know, so I, I, I mean, I, I know that they don't really want the attention, um, you know, to this topic. And I think that's, you know, why we're going in the direction of legalizing marijuana and not testing for marijuana in athletics. Yeah, the NBA, I mean, it's like a brotherhood. So I'm sure, I'm curious if there were guys in Boston that were that McDyess or Van Exel for you in Boston, because you mentioned a lot about pretending in, yeah. uh, in the first day. And it's easy to pretend when you're a teenager, but how hard is it to pretend in an NBA lifestyle? And how aware were your teammates of that in Boston? You know, my teammates in Boston were young. Right. I was young. They were young. I mean, we had, you know, Kenny Anderson was on that team. He was older. Um, but for the most part, it was a pretty young group. You know, Walter McCarty, Antoine, Paul Pierce, uh, Tony Batie. I mean, it was a pretty young group. Um, so, you know, everybody, you know, where Denver was a kind of everybody wanted to spend time together in Denver and Boston seemed to be, you know, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. Um, but, but in Boston, my struggle was so severe, right? I mean, I was so addicted to Oxycontin and I, you know, it became my world. Yeah. You know, every decision I made, you know, Oxycontin had, you know, played a role in it. Um, you know, the way I traveled, the way I played, the way I prepared, you know, the, the time put into it when I was with the Celtics, um, you know, shipping it all over the country. So it's, you know, at the Ritz Carlton when I land in Dallas, that it will be in San Antonio. Um, 
you know, just the effort and energy put into it, it was immense, um, you know, which didn't allow me to put much energy and effort into anything else. But yeah. And, you know, players in today's NBA, they have a lot of power and can really determine where they go and where they don't want to go. Obviously, it's a little different back then, but did you maybe try fighting that move to Boston, maybe using your player power to not go back to Boston? Because I'm assuming you knew that it wouldn't be a good situation if you went back to the Boston yeah. area. Yeah, but a guy like me, you know, Antoine Walker had power. Paul Pierce had power. You know, I had zero. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm at the end of the roster. Um, and, you know, that end of the roster, you know, player nine through 15 is expendable. You know, I mean, you can find a place in the NBA if you wear the right clothes and you show up to practice at the right time and you leave when everyone else is showering. You know, if you stay in the gym when everyone else is showering, you know, um, you know, if you're a good teammate and you're a hard worker and, you know, you can find a place at the end of the bench. Um, you know, I didn't have those qualities because I was so wrapped up in, in, in my addiction you know, that, you know, I was, you know, I had, I remember missing a flight in Boston. I remember, you know, faking injuries because I was sick. I remember, you know, I remember sitting on the bench when I was active praying that they didn't put me in the game because I wasn't feeling well. Um, so, you know, my leverage was very little. Um, you know, if I, if I tried to, to kind of, push my weight around they would have told me to beat it um you know and rightfully so right and you know i mean i i know a lot of people close to me that have gone through addiction and the one thing that i personally found in common with all of them is that none of them want the drugs in their system while they're addicted and it seems like a dumb question but did you also share that feeling where you didn't want it and if so like what was it specifically that drew you to always go back even when you don't want it you know i think if if you look at it right i remember you know i i can reflect back now on on my story and some of the things that i went through but you know there was a time that i had a lot of resources um you know i had access to you know money to purchase drugs and, and, you know, drug dealers would always say to me, you know, why are you buying, you know, a day's worth when, you know, you could, you know, you could give me $30,000 and have four months worth. Um, and, you know, looking back, I met a drug dealer every day for almost 10 years um, because I wanted that day to be my last day. You know, even though I could buy for three months, six months, I, I never wanted to be in it that long. Um, you know, I wanted to get out of it and I thought that I could get out of it. And, you know, it was never, I never had fun doing it. It was always, it, it never ended well. Um, you know, it always felt wrong in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was exhausting. Um, you know, when you wake up every day and you take a chance at dying, um, you know, it's a really sad world, you know, and, you know, I would just take a visual, right? Like there's Christopher and Samantha sitting on the couch watching cartoons and daddy's going to go in the basement and stick a needle in his arm. And, and there's a very good chance that I could overdose. Um, 
you know, so, so anytime you take a chance at dying, anytime, you know, you're chasing death for that feeling is, is, you know, it's, it's really, really tragic and sad. You bring up a good point with that too, because a lot of people that, that, you know, get through addiction to the other side of not using, they always say that towards the end of their addictions, they were using to chase that high that they would never get. Not, you know, the first high you get is the high that, you know, you don't, you don't get that high again. And it's something that you're always chasing, you know, and then it becomes almost like a daily routine to almost function in a way. Um, unfortunately, it sounds like that was what you were going through, through your lowest of lows. Um, one question I have that's really interesting to me was, are you, so you're dealing with getting your drugs on the road. You're doing this yourself, right? There's no friend that's a go-between or a handler. Like you're basically finding these drug dealers across the country and overseas yourself. Is that correct? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't have anybody. I just had drug dealers. I mean, sadly, drug dealers become your friends. Sure. You know, because they, they end up being the only people you really communicate with. And so you're, um, you're in this thing where you're going across the country playing, you know, either with the Nuggets or the Celtics and you're, are, are people, is it like a network where people are knowing like that you're looking for what you're looking for? Or is it just something where you're just, you're knowing from word of mouth where to find it? Yes. Yeah. See, I never really hunted. Like I never really like went after it on the street in the NBA because I had the resources. Right. Right. I either I either had my drug dealer ship it or I traveled with a bunch of it. Um, it wasn't until I went to uh, to Europe and, and to Asia is where, you know, I had to hit the streets and, and, and really hunt for it and, and seek it out. Um, you know, and what you learn, I mean, struggle, struggle and suffering is very, you know, common and shared amongst many. And, you know, drug addiction is, is a universal language. Um, you know, you don't need to speak Chinese to buy heroin. You know, you don't need to speak Italian to buy, you know, heroin, cocaine. Um, you know, we, we know what to, 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 you know, it's in, it's, it's basically can be done just on hand gestures, you know, and, and, and what you're looking for. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And and talking about overseas, um, did you ever feel like you were getting caught up in dangerous situations? And did you ever feel like you know your family would end up in a dangerous situation from for your from your actions when you're not familiar with that country and language and stuff like that? Or does that stuff never cross your mind just because you're so you know in deep with your addictions? Oh, gosh, I was in a dangerous situation every day, right? I mean, the, the, the drug market that I dealt with in China were all Nigerians. Um, they were all Nigerians who were in China, whether I don't know how, work visas, but that's those are the guys who handled my stuff. Um, so I would travel, you know, to Nigerian, like the ghetto of, of Beijing where all the Nigerians lived to get my heroin, um, you know, and, and finding, you know, street corners in Istanbul, Turkey, and, you know, getting introduced to a cab driver in Iran who, who delivered me my drugs. Um, I think it was a dangerous situation every day. Um, you know, I put, 
you know, my family at risk, my freedom in jeopardy, um, you know, every day when I went out in, in, you know, in Europe or in Asia. Yeah. And I'm really curious, how were you able to kind of live this professional athlete or NBA lifestyle when this addiction is happening? You're spending so much money on drugs on a daily basis. Like, I mean, to give our listeners idea, an idea, what was kind of that lifestyle like and how much do you think that you're spending a day? Oh, it varied, right? Like, you know, I could spend 20 grand in a month. Um, you know, it just depend. It just it depended where I was at in life, right? And you know, I realized what it was like to to suffer from drug addiction when I had nothing left. You know, it's 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 you know it, it it's perspective, right? Like I really struggled with my drug addiction when I had a lot of money because I consumed so much drugs. So the struggle was different, you know. And then I ran out of money and I had nothing left to pawn. I had nothing left to to sell. Um, and I did small amounts in comparison. Um, but the hustle was different. The struggle was different. It was, it was, it was hard to, you know, both are very hard to manage, you know, an abundance of money and having, having no money. Um, the addiction is, is, is very difficult in both, in both, uh, spectrum, both avenues. Yeah. And, you know, one of the quotes that I love from you is that it bothers you when people ask for a quick recovery. And I think you say that you pray for a long recovery. And I want to talk about your road to recovery really quick and, and what exactly you mean by that and how important it is to maybe take those steps. And, and what were the main steps that you took in order to really have a successful recovery? Well, you know, I, I, I started going to to, to meetings, right? And I would hear old timers, you know, say, pray for a slow recovery. Um, you know, and, and people who suffer from drug addiction and, and what we go through in life, we want, we want to recover fast. You know, we want to put, put our past in the past, right? We want to, you know, make amends and say our apologies and prove that we can live a better life. Um, you know, the fact that I prayed for a slow recovery and I didn't want things to come back to me fast. And I was very calculating and, and methodical about some of the decisions I was making. And I, I really leaned on people who, who helped me make decisions. And some people made the decisions for me. Um, you know, so, you know, people, people rush recovery. I mean, I'm sitting at my wellness center in Virginia. And, you know, there's, a, there's someone here right now who got here yesterday, who's already talking about, you know, moving to look back to Los Angeles and, you know, getting their life back. And they haven't been here 24 hours. Um, so, you know, the evidence that I have being an owner of a wellness center and part of people's lives and their recovery journey is, you know, the people who stay and the people who kind of invest in their recovery, um, in early recovery, you know, have the benefits of long-term sobriety. Um, and, you know, for me, my journey was longer than most. You know, I stayed in, in a recovery setting for 11 months. And I believe that 11 month commitment that I made 13 years ago has given me what I have today. 
Yeah. I don't know if you've been asked this before, but how important do you think it was to know your wife before the addiction really started? And do you think her ability to really know you before you changed and started like pretending like you reference in other documentaries, do you think that ability to know you before that all happened helped you in your recovery, but also to maybe like remember to know or love yourself again? You know, I think my wife knowing me before my addiction, you know, gave her hope, you know, that she knew, she knew a different person. She knew my authenticity, my genuineness, you know, the person who I was before all of it. Um, so I think that sometimes gave my wife hope that, you know, one day I'll be back to normal in a sense. Um, you know, but the reality is addiction makes everybody ill, right? Not just the person who's engaged in addiction, their family members, you know, like it hurts everybody that loves them, you know, like it affects everyone that cares for them. Um, you know, uh, at my wellness center, we do a lot of family work because families suffer. You know, they're the ones, you know, who are staying up late at night waiting for that phone call. They're showing up to the hospital after an overdose. They're, you know, taking care of what you can't take care of. And so there's a lot of trauma and, and there's a lot of unresolved, you know, uh, moments that take place. Um, you know, and my wife became, you know, very toxic in a sense, our relationship, you know, it became very toxic and, you know, she's raising two beautiful kids and she, my wife kicked ass and kicks ass as a mother. And my children are so blessed and you know, what we've been through to be the kids, the, the young adults they are today, you know, is absolutely amazing. And, it, and it's due to my wife. And, you know, she put her head down and managed my madness, um, but also kept this very ins insular, you know, um, family dynamic with our children and kept them protected from it. Um, so you know, she was caught up in the chaos um, often. And, and I think that because I met my wife in seventh grade and, and she knew me long before, long before heroin and cocaine and crystal meth and every other drug that I've, I've taken, um, you know, I think that was helpful. You, know, you bring up a great point about that because I know with me and my family, you know, what my dad put my mom through and, and me and my sister, I think the biggest thing that I realized was it, it, it definitely did affect everybody. And I think when my dad got his recovery on track was when he started to realize how much his alcoholism affected other people in our family. Mm. And I think that was kind of like one of those like, okay, he's understanding now because I, I think it's that that responsibility almost where you start to realize like, wow, I, I really, you know, hurt the people that love me the most. And, and when I think he started realizing that and I started noticing the way he started talking differently, you know, and, and now there's, you know, the way he talks now it's, it's, I'm really proud of him because I know that he's made such strides and, and something that I always thought he was going to live with the rest of his life. And I thought, you know, mm -hmm. he, he would die like his dad did an alcoholic, you know, and, and, 
you know, now when I see him and I wish he would have done it earlier. And he said that too, but it's cool to see him go, you know, like he understands now. And, and, and it wasn't, you know, it was like, it was important. And I, and I think it's amazing that your wife stuck with you that whole time. And, you know, the, the sacrifices she made. And I think it's, it's really cool. It's, it's inspiring to me, you know, mm -hmm. um, when did you, when did you get into motivational speaking? Like, what was the, what was the thing that made you realize you wanted to do that? So I never realized I wanted to do it, right? I, it happened all by accident. Um, you know, I was teaching kids how to play basketball. I had lost my driver's license. Um, and a teacher at a neighboring, in a neighboring town um, had read my story and thought that, you know, it could be impactful for her students. So, you know, she called me in. And she said, hey, listen, I'm going to have you sit in my class and talk to six different health classes um, throughout the day. And I want you to educate my students on on your story. And, you know, I did that. That that was the beginning. And then, you know, from that, she called a couple of other health teachers that she was familiar with and, um, you know, said, hey, listen, I got a guy that I think would be really helpful. He came to my school and it just kept it just continued. Um, and it hasn't stopped, you know, I think public speaking, um, it's a very word of mouth business. You know, if you're not genuine and you're not passionate about it and you're not real, you know, they don't pick up the phone and say, Hey, bring him in, especially in, in the world of education and children, right? Like, you know, you're not going to bring in someone who doesn't put 110% effort into it. At least I wouldn't. Um, so it, it didn't, there was never a plan to be a motivational speaker. It just kind of happened. Um, and, you know, it's, it's now continued for almost 10 years. How, um, this is probably a question you might not have been asked. Um, how hard is it to continue to be a motivational speaker? And, I, and what I mean by that is, is like, you know, you know, you're doing something amazing, you know, you know that you have an opportunity to reach somebody and, and they always say if you reach one person, it's a success, right? If you make mm -hmm. one person change what they're doing, you know, um, or give one hope, it's a success. But how hard is it for you personally, like you're doing today with us to tell your story? And, and to like constantly tell your story, does that wear on you at all? Does it wear you down a bit? you know, like, oh, God, yeah. you know course. what I mean? Yeah, 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 of course. It's, you know, it can be exhausting and sometimes detrimental, right? I mean, there was a time I was doing it, you know, I was doing 250 speaking events a year, you know, and, and, and then I found myself in a hotel room thinking, you know, a, 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 a bottle of vodka would put me to bed you know, and nobody would know. Um, you know, I found myself isolated, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, you know, all of it, you know, and it became, you know, uh, uh, I had to be honest and, and dial it back. And today it's still very difficult to tell my story. I, I think what allows me to tell my story, um, what allows me to tell my story is that, you know, I, I see the emotion that, that the kids have on their face as I'm doing it. Um, 
And that's very inspiring to me. It's very, you know, it allows me to be aware that, you know, kids need to hear this. Um, and as a speaker, you know, I've evolved, right? Like I've grown up, I've matured. I've, you know, there's certain language that I no longer use. I think, you know, that's why the first day is a great accomplishment of mine because, you know, like I've said, and I've say it in the first day, it's, 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 it, we always talk about the worst day, you know, and we never recognize the first day. We never talk about, you know, what people look like in the beginning of their drug addiction. We always want to show our children, you know, a picture of a mugshot or a meth addict with no teeth, um, you know, and look what drugs do to you. Um, you know, you're going to be homeless. You're going to be a prostitute. You're going to sell everything. You're going to lose everything. It's like this doom and gloom, which it is. But the reality is there's also a very innocent beginning to this, or there's a very specific beginning to this. And, and we need to ask why, and we need to talk about the first day. We need to talk about, you know, what this looks like in the beginning rather than only the ending. Um, so, you know, to, to change the message, to, to change the approach has kind of pulled me somewhat out of it. You know, it's not so personal telling my story. It's, it's kind of a different message, um, but it's still very exhausting and tiring. Yeah. And, you know, I really admire everything that you're doing. I, I coach high school basketball, so I'm around kids every day. And to see the emotion that these kids have when they listen to you and how you just demand their attention, um, I'm really curious if out of all those assemblies where you see those emotions and you see the focus on you, is there maybe one day that really clicked with you where you realized like my, my words are changing lives or what was that most emotional moment for you personally, where you really felt that you were reaching out to those kids? Um, you know, I think, you know, when the emails started coming in, you know, when kids started telling their story, when kids started opening up um, and you know, taking a chance, right? Being very honest and raw and emotional. And, you know, when you're getting, you know, emails from children who are talking about, you know, the suffering that they're going through either themselves personally um, or their family, um, you know, you know that you're, you're creating a space where people feel safe and, you know, maybe a beginning, you know, to a different, you know, a different outlook or, or giving them healthy options. That's why, you know, I started the foundation. That's why my foundation was so important because I would go into schools and I would, I would do my presentation, but, you know, there was nothing there on the back end. And, you know, the whole purpose of it was to, you know, have support on the back end and to stop the heroin project and help people who are suffering from drug use and help people suffering from alcoholism, but also support children who, who, you know, are affected by my presentation and have clinicians waiting on the back end to, to support them and, and, and navigate and manage some of the emotions that they're going through is, is something that, you know, gives, gives me great comfort and, and, and pride. Um, 
And, you know, over the last 10 years, we've been able, you know, I think we've, we've, we've put, you know, 4,000 people in treatment, um, you know, over close to $7 million in scholarships. Um, you know, so a lot of work and, and, and a lot of, you know, great work and, and real impact um, that we've been able to accomplish over the last 10 years. Yeah, that, those numbers are absolutely amazing. I mean, that's, mm. that's 4,000, you know, I mean, that's easily 4,000 people's lives you made a difference in on top of all the other people's lives you made a difference in just talking to them, giving them, you know, because the thing about addiction, and you know this very well, is like, you can't get help until you're ready, until you know, like, I'm ready, ready, you know, and I, and I always noticed that, you know, with, with my dad and other friends where it's like when they quit, it was because they knew like I've hit rock bottom or like I'm ready. And they, they were open to receiving help. I think that's huge. Um, a question I have for you that I think is kind of interesting. I'm a parent myself and um, being a parent, you know, and also, you know, being an addict, what do you think are the most important signs or questions to ask kids to catch them early um, before they start addiction or in their early stages of addiction? You know, I, I think the process has to begin, you know, early and, and the trust and, you know, the, the, you know, the uncomfortable conversations have to start at a young age. Um, and when I say uncomfortable, I, I'm talking about like self-esteem and self-worth and checking in. You know, getting a getting a gauge on where your kids are at, you know, emotionally and and how they feel socially, um, you know, and, and, you know, I think parents, you know, they think, you know, everything will work itself out sometimes and kids suffer in silence. And, you know, there's a lot of kids that go to school every day and they're worried about being bullied and they sit in the classroom and they hate the fact that the bell's going to ring and they're going to have to walk in the hallway again. You know, and, and, and there's impact there, you know, and that's that's something that affects kids long term. Um, so I think, you know, parents for so many years were looked at as like, oh, we can't because I'm your parent. We can't talk about certain things. It's uncomfortable. It shouldn't be, you know, our, our children, you know, should should come to us first. And, you know, to have to have that you know, those conversations with them on how they're feeling socially. Are they confident? Do they feel comfortable? Are they, you know, is their self-worth, you know, where it's supposed to be? Or, or you know, how can we, how can I help you with your self-esteem? Um, you know, I think those are all, you know, factors that play into some of the decisions kids make, you know, in eighth grade and in high school. So I think, I think it's that type of, um, connection that needs to be established early. You know, you make a you make a great point there too because I think about when I was younger and I I got into I got into alcohol I think when I was thirteen mm -hmm. um, and I didn't progress into hard drugs um, really because of like my mom scaring the crap out of me with it <laughs> you know the just say no Nancy Reagan era but the Len bias thing really shook me and. Um, you know, the one thing that I think about is, is how much harder it's got to be to be a parent right now in like, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky so far because my kids are still young, but man, social media, smartphones, 
I mean, could you imagine what your life would have been like back then with those tools and, mm. and what, what, how, I mean, like, so I guess another question I want to ask real quick, if you don't mind is how do you introduce those topics into your conversations when you public speak because of those things weren't available to us when we were kids and those things weren't available to you when you were going through your addiction at first. Right. So I mean, I, I, I'm not going to pretend. Right. And I think kids right. appreciate that. I'm not going to pretend to know what it feels like to hold a cell phone, you know, at, at 12 um, and, and to, you know, to get a notification that someone liked my picture. Um, I can't pretend, you know, I can tell them, you know, what it was like for me and the insecurities that I dealt with and this kind of the sadness I carried and, you know, the sadness and the suffering that I went through in, in high school and in middle school, right? And elementary school. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can, that's where I think kids say like, oh shit, like he's, he's kind of relatable. You know, I think telling my story, kids were like, you know, man, like that guy went through a lot, you know? And then when I switched it to the first day, they're like, this guy's kind of speaking my language, you know, about emotion and self-esteem and self-worth and lack of attention or, or, or too much attention. And, you know, I think they, they identify with that message. Um, that, you know, I can't imagine, you know, growing up, you know, with a cell phone, I don't know what that impact would have had on me. Um, you know, but, you know, kids, you know, kids have it, in my opinion, they have, they have it difficult today. Um, you know, technology and, and is, is having great impact on both sides, you know, the good and the bad. And, you know, I, I also think that, you know, drugs are stronger, you know, there's more, you know, marijuana is stronger today than it was in 1990, um, the amount of pills that are out today. I mean, people weren't making pills when I was younger. You weren't buying fentanyl and Percocets when I was younger. Um, you know, kids, you know, who think they're taking Xanax are overdosing because, you know, it's fake Xanax. It's, it's fentanyl. Um, you know, they're, they're, the awareness is pretty high. Um, and that's what's so tragic. Like I met with a family who, you know, who's very well off and very successful and very well educated. And, you know, I looked at them and I said, you know, your 19 year old son who's in a Ivy League university, you know, he's very well aware that the pills he's buying on the street could have fentanyl and he could die from it. You know, like you want to chalk it up to, oh, my kid just, he's taking too much Xanax. Like he, I need to dial him back. Your kid knows that he's taken, taken Xanax and probably has fentanyl in it. So and it's scary. The fentanyl too. I had, I had a student of mine pass away from that a couple of years ago. Exactly what you just explained. You know, yeah. like he thought he was taking a Xanax. It was laced with fentanyl and he died, you know, al alone on a bathroom floor. And sure. It's one of those things where it's like they're rolling the dice with things that they don't understand the circumstances of. And I think it's because they're so young at the same time. You know, they don't understand like, you know, we get one chance, we get one life and 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 something like that. It's so risky, you know. Right. But, but see, that's what I want 
wanted to make those parents aware. Their kid looked me in the eye and he knew that when he hit the street looking for Xanax, that most likely he was taking fentanyl. Wow. So he was, so not only was he, you know, you know, messing around with Xanax, but he also, he loved the feeling of fentanyl, you know, and, and, and kids can hide behind that. They can say like, Oh, I, I just, you know, I'm taking a couple of Xanny bars, but really, you know, you're actually addicted to fentanyl. You actually love the fentanyl feeling, you yeah. know, you, you can say it's Xanax, but you and I both know that it's not. And, and you're, you're addicted to the fentanyl feeling. So, you know, and that's, that's what parents need to wrap their head around that, you know, like their kid is taking a chance of dying, like as good as the life might look and as good as he might seem and the school that he's going to and the campus he's hanging out on. The reality is your son has a part of him that is taking a chance at dying. And that's really, really scary. I completely agree. How how hard is it to be a motivational speaker and in terms of of keeping up with the lingo and keeping up with things to to make yourself still relatable? How hard is that to do? Do you do that? Do you do a lot of research? I'm assuming you do because of your wellness center and your harem project. But is it hard to is is it hard to do that? Is it hard to to stay on top of the game, especially when you're not, you know, an addict anymore? I think it's hard to stay relevant, period, right? In anything in life, right? And I, I think the relevancy, I think, you know, the shelf life of a public speaker, you know, when I first started this, I signed with the Speakers Bureau. And the Speakers Bureau, you know, told me, like, we're probably going to be in this relationship for a year and a half. It's going to come fast and it's going to go. Um, and, you know, the, 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 there's not longevity in it, um, you know, because, you, you know, most people, they write a book, they do a documentary, their, their, their life is a movie, and it's interesting to people temporarily. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to, to change the message. You know, if I think if I just continued to tell my story, I don't think I'd be as relevant anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of became, you know, as like a street educator in a sense and a raw, uh, like I talked about a lot of the, uncom I talk about a lot of the uncomfortable things that people don't want to talk about, um, you know, because everybody wants their kid or believe that the kid's like really happy and, and content and confident and, you know, they just raised an unbelievable child, but you know, that un unbelievable child, you know, might struggle and might hide it from you. And, you know, I, and I also think, you know, and I say this to parents, you know, stop pretending, stop telling your children that like middle school, high school and college were the best years of your life, you know, because they feel like they have to live up to it, you know, and, and like, you know, sophomore year was very, like, tell your children, like sophomore year was fucking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like my junior year of high school was bizarre, you know, or, you know, like let them in, let them know that like, you know, there was struggle in those years for you. And then, then they don't feel like they have to live up to the, like, this expectation and, and then wonder why high school feels different for them. And they feel, 
you know, they're not unique, right? Like it's not a unique thing to struggle at that age. I wanted to ask you about your wellness center real quick. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask um, a question I think that's kind of important too, because you had mentioned that, you know, you didn't have a driver's license and, you know, that one person helped you out to, to speak to the health classes. Do you do that pay it forward and employ people in your wellness center that are recovering and need opportunities? Like, is, is that part of who you're hiring or how does that work? You know, I, I, I'd say the majority of people in my wellness centers are people in recovery. Um, you know, and, and a good percentage of people that work in my wellness centers right now are people that went to my wellness center, you know, and now have two, three years sober. Um, so yes, there is that element. And listen, people who are, you know, recovery is a constant process, right? Like there's no, there's no end game. You know, like I tell people all the time, like, you know, it'd be nice if there was a finish line, but there's no such thing, right? It's something that you are going to be either engaged in and part of for the rest of your life, or you're going to pull out. And the reality is you're probably going to struggle. Um, so, so recovery is attractive and you want to be around people who are, who are, who are engaged in it. Right. And it's, you know, I hire a lot of people, um, you know, I'd say, like I said, I think 80% of the people that work for me are in recovery. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And, and, but that doesn't mean like people who aren't in recovery can't do this work, you know, like they can, you know, and, and, and people are very, who aren't in recovery are still very passionate about helping people. Um, and they're very, and they're great at their job because that's who they are at their core. You know, they want to be part of somebody's story. They want to have impact. And, you know, that's the beauty of, of helping people in this space. Like, you know, I'm looking out the window right now at my wellness center and I'm seeing, you know, five people playing tennis. But the reality is those five people have, you know, between the five of them, they have 30, 40 people that like are right now at home praying that this works. Yeah. And you know, so although we have our hands on them and we're looking to impact their life, we also want to impact the people who love them and, and have, you know, and give them peace and happiness and comfort. So, you know, it's a beautiful process and, and I'm very blessed to still, you know, be part of it. And, you know, the evolution of, of, you know, getting sober and, and being a repo guy and turning into a basketball instructor, teacher, and, you know, my, and, you know, and then having basketball camps and then to a public speaker and an author and now a documentary and now, you know, a foundation and, and now a wellness center, um, you know, is something that, you know, I'm very proud of, but I wouldn't have been able to do it by myself. I've had unbelievable guidance, unbelievable support, you know, along the way. And I have, you know, I tell people in my centers all the time, like, you know, find the starting five, you know, come off the bench, be the sixth man of the year and find the starting five in your life that you're going to sit and you're going to learn from and watch, and they're going to inspire you and encourage you and make you compete. Um, you know, because you need, you need a team to do this. Um, and, and that's what we try to create here.
I think that's awesome. And I, I think it's, I think it's important too, because, you know, one thing we keep circling back on in this conversation is hope. And I think a lot of times when you're at your lowest and you're recovering, I think the, the most, most important thing you need to have is hope and also getting out of that situation. Like, I mean, if you go to jail because of your addictions or, you know, you become a, you, you, you end up being a felon because of your addictions, you're put so much behind the eight ball after that. I mean, it's so hard to advance in your life, you know, because you've got that, that check mark saying you're a felon or that check mark that you know, you're a drug addict or any of those things. And I think the help and the education, education is another important word that a lot of people forget to use when it comes to this, is that the education and the help and the support to let that person not make the mistakes that they made before, give them hope and opportunity, I think is huge. Um, enormous. And, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to end with this, right. That I think, you know, the stigma, you know, the stigma of, of around addiction, you know, there was a point in my life where sobriety didn't seem to, it wasn't attractive because I was always going to be a junkie. I was always going to be a dope fiend. I was always going to be a heroin addict. I was always going to be a criminal with a record. Like my life was over and it was real. So, so there were times in my, in my addiction, I was like, why, why am I going to get sober? For what, you know, for what, what is it? What's going to really change? You know, I'm not going to be able to work. I'm not going to be able to get good jobs. I'm always going to be labeled. And the, the reality to that is, you know, recovery allows you to grow fast and, it keeps you on your toes and present 24 seven. And to me, people in recovery have a huge advantage because, you know, they're alert, they're awake, they're present 24 seven. There's no mind altering drugs in their system. You know, they're not hung over. They're not up all night, you know? So there are, unbelievable advantages to being sober and and just the 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 empathy and and the understanding of what people struggle with because you know the reality is a lot you know struggle is relative and struggle is to me is just struggle like i can hug someone who suffers from depression and really empathize with them because i know what it's like to be sad i know what it's like to to feel like it's not going to get better um so, you know, it, it, there are, sadly, the stigma has, has held a lot of people back. And, you know, it, I know one thing, who I am today and what I've accomplished today is because of my sobriety, you know, and, and what sobriety has given me the strengths and, and the, the people, um, you know, that a part of my team and I'm a part of theirs is, 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 is who I am today. So, you know, and, and the reality is it's people like you and who, you know, are willing to talk about it and raise awareness and, and create this space for people to, to be educated and learn. You know, absolutely. Clarity is a huge thing. Um, mm. I, I can't thank you enough personally for coming on the show today. Um, you know, we, we, we share some common things and, uh, it was, it was, you really helped me today, you know, to be able to 
continue my talks with my dad and um, mm. gave me information that will help me, you know, be a better son to my dad at, with his recovery. I, I can't thank you enough for that. Sure. And um, before we let you out of here, Zach, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I just want to say, Mr. Heron, thank you for your time today. Um, you, you're truly a big inspiration to me. Um, you've touched me in ways that you'll never even know just from the way that you speak. Uh, I'm a high school coach and I'm going to be a dad one day. And just these conversations truly were life-changing for me and to have close friends to me that have gone through addictions. It was just a real pleasure and honor to pick your brain a little bit today and learn more about it and, uh, give our listeners an idea and awareness and what to look for. So we really appreciate you more than you'll ever know. Well, no, I appreciate you guys. And, and like I said, it's, it's platforms like this, you know, that give us an opportunity to impact and, and to change and, you know, to educate and, you know, hopefully, you know, one person listens to this and says, you know, I, I have a different outlook on addiction or, you know, I'm going to have that conversation with my children. Um, I'm not going to wait, you know, until it's absolutely necessary. You know, I'm not going to, you know, react. I'm going to be proactive around this topic. And, you know, that drugs and alcohol are attached to multiple things. And it's not just, you know, some person who wants to, you know, get high or, you know, or get drunk. I mean, you know, there's a lot of feelings and there's a lot of emotions and there's a lot of things that are attached to that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's guys like you and, and people like you who, who create these platforms. And, you know, I'm very thankful and I'm grateful and I, I really appreciate the time. And, and I look forward to, uh, you know, either reconnecting or shaking hands one day. So thank you. Thank you both very much. We really appreciate that. Make sure you stay safe out there, my friend. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again and actually shake your hand. That'd be amazing. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Take care. Thank you. All right. Wow. <laughs> He's powerful, man. Um, tr truly one of my heroes. I just, I've listened to him speak so many times, just watching his documentary. And uh, when you have friends that have gone through addiction and have died from addiction, uh, that's just... That's a heavy one for me. Just all morning is uh, is really heavy, but such an honor to be able to talk to him. And I just know that's going to help me be better moving forward. I know that it's going to touch one of our listeners out there, even one. I, I think it will touch multiple, but like you said, just, just even one is a success. He does a great job with what he does, and you can tell how passionate he is. And he was super open about it. And, um, you know, I think it, it – I think it would – this episode will make a huge difference with a lot of people because there is a lot of um, stigma, like he talked about. And the other thing too, that we don't realize, and I'm not going to get on the soapbox for long. I'm just going to say this real quick is, you know, he mentioned a lot of stuff about being younger and decision-making and peer pressure and all that other stuff. You have to think about how much stuff is fed to us when we're kids about, you know, like the, the beer companies and, and all these, you know, I mean, look at, you know, look at how much it's, it's, everything is just, it's, it's being normalized now to the point of like, you know, look at, I mean, look at, you can't go anywhere or do anything in town without there being a drink associated to it. Let's go paint and get drunk. Let's do this and get drunk. Let's have a beer and do that. I mean, like girls go get their hair done and have, have wine and champagne. It's, it's, 
it's to the point where it's like, you know, enjoy yourself. And if you can do that, great, you know, but it's almost like we're setting ourselves up in a way to have people get addicted to this stuff because of the normalcy also that, you know, I remember being a kid and seeing the bud girls on the back of the covers of, you know, sports magazines. It's very difficult in, nowadays. And that's why I wanted to ask him the question about the cell phones and things like that. It's like, I can't even imagine being a younger kid and having cell phones and having things like social media. And that's just that added peer pressure. You know, we use it for different ways, but man, I couldn't imagine being bullied at 13. Imagine sending a picture to somebody and that person sending that picture to your whole school. Right. Like something embarrassing, you trust that person. That could be that road that puts you down to substance abuse. You know what I mean? That could be that thing where you just lose confidence, lose, you know, I think that was the thing he talked about, you know, being, you know, talking, having open relationships, having converse, hard conversations, but not about drugs and alcohol as much as like hard conversations on where your kids are at, you know, are, yeah. the, are they confident? Are they getting bullied? Are they, do they need help with this? I mean, because those are those, those paths that, you know, I think you can go down to be in trouble. And when you're younger, you don't make the same decisions that you do when you're older. You know what yeah. I mean? It's, we could go on hours about this conversation, um, but I do, I really respect the hell out of him. I mean, if you haven't seen the 30 for 30 or the first day, you really need to watch both and understand, okay. you know, what, where this man has come from. Um, I mean, this is a guy that was a basketball star in yeah. the Boston area, you know, got his dream comes true, goes to the Boston Celtics and he's suffering an addiction while, yeah. while he's going through all this and, I'll never forget just the part in Unguarded where he's in his Boston Celtics warm-up outside of the Boston Garden waiting for his oxy dealer five minutes before game time, and he's in the starting lineup. And I mean, if that's not a wake-up call of how bad it was, I mean, I don't know what other story will really hit a basketball player like that. But if you watch the first day, just the way that he connects with those kids, the way that they have their attention – um, you can just tell that he has a gift and a talent that really no other motivational speaker, in my opinion, has to capture the attention and emotions of that many kids. It's really impressive to me. And um, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. I just respect the living hell out of him. I, I, I love that guy. He's, he's a hero to me. Yeah. And, he, and he's taking his platform and using it for good and, and realizing that, you know, his what happened to him affected what could have been a, a bigger basketball career and other things. But the thing that's cool is, is that he has his family and, and he's sober today. Think for everybody out there that's struggling with addictions or feels like they might be struggling with addictions and, and probably are and not realizing how bad it is. It, it really is one day and you can make that choice one day to go, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and he's right about having a starting five, having help. You need that support. If you don't have the support, it's going to make it that much tougher. And yeah, I mean, like I said, we could talk about this for hours and maybe one day we'll get him on again, you know. Um, but yeah, amazing conversation. And I hope you guys took what we got out of it and even more because it's an important conversation to have. Speaking of that, thank you guys so much for um for listening and for sharing our stuff and for writing reviews and everything you're doing. It's amazing. And we're super grateful. I mean, 16 countries charting on, um, it's nuts. 
and we love it and and we appreciate it. So thank you guys for taking the time to do that. Like I said, real quick, you know, if you're a new listener and you enjoyed the show, go back and check out some of our other episodes. Some people that that directly knew Chris, we've we've talked to on our shows. We've talked to a lot of different people, um, basketball wise, and there's a lot of great stories. We're we're definitely storytellers. We love to allow people to tell their stories on our show. So make sure you check that stuff out. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here? Just big thanks to Chris Heron for his time today. And I just hope that he continues to do the wonderful things that he's doing and, and more. Um, and also go support his wellness center. Uh, go, you know, go do your research, go check it out. Uh, he's really doing some incredible things. And, you know, just thanks to everybody for your support and listening. Absolutely. Everybody stay safe out there. Be good to each other. Peace.